Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 27. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, special welcome to uh, the Baileys, Matt Bailey. Uh, baby Rory was born this week at, at what? How much? How old was or how, how old was she? She was zero. But uh, how much did she weigh? Eight pounds ten ounces. Uh, congrats, you guys. Um, so we are just about to wrap up uh, this journey that we've been making together uh, on on the hard sayings of Jesus. Next week is actually our last week in this series, and we're going to go ahead and dive into the book of Revelation, which will be fun uh, throughout the rest of the year. But one of the prayers that I've had throughout this series that we're in right now is that our hearts would be willing to receive these hard saints. I think there's a reason that these sayings are, are hard, some of them because they're hard to understand, but I think all of them is because they're, they're hard to, to really swallow, they're, they're hard to accept, difficult to obey. But because we know that even the hardest sayings that come from the mouth of Jesus are true, these hard sayings have huge implications for how we live our lives. And today we're, we're really kind of looking at two different hard sayings in this passage of Scripture. One of them is going to confront our cultural assumptions about who Jesus is as a Savior of the world. And the other one's going to confront our cultural assumptions about what it now means for us to follow him, what it means for us to be his disciple. So let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll go ahead and get started in our text. Uh, Father, we're grateful for another opportunity to gather as a church family and to be fed by your word. I know that many of us, many of us who are here this afternoon seeking to encounter you, seeking to hear from uh, your word, maybe um, just a word of comfort, a word of peace, a longing f to hear just truth in a culture of confusion. Lord, we desire to, to taste and see that you are good. 
to see that you are beautiful. And in the most supernatural of ways and just the, the deepest crevices of our hearts uh, that we might find ourselves fed and satisfied in Christ alone. And so Lord, through this text and through the power of your spirit, would you do that in Christ's name? Amen. Here's the first thing that we see in this passage of scripture is that Jesus is the Savior King. He's the saving King. We see this in verse uh, 13 through 17, where it says that Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The reason he's asking this question is because by this point in his ministry, uh, Jesus has started to gather more and more people. He's been more and more interest around in the land and in the culture uh, about who Jesus is and all these things that he's teaching, these miracles he's performing. And so Jesus is kind of like, hey, what's the word on the street? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And these disciples, they say, hey, some say John the Baptist. Others are saying Elijah, that Old Testament prophet. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. He responded to Simon Peter and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, these verses set the stage for our hard saying. It establishes here that Jesus is the Savior King. I think the difficult part for us, the hard saying portion, is what it means for him to be the Savior King. But in order for us, before we get there, we need some context on the conversation that's happening when Jesus says some of these hard things that we'll, we'll get up to in a minute. And so here's what's happening. Jesus is asking one of the most foundational questions to his disciples. One of the most important elementary foundational questions he can ask, which is, who do you say I am? And he's asking this question when they arrive in the district of Caesarea Philippi. We read about that in verse 13. Now, why in the world does that matter? Why does it matter where Jesus is having this conversation? And it matters because that particular location, Caesarea Philippi, matters. It's an important location. There's a lot of meaning behind that geographical location. Jesus was leading his disciples to this location intentionally. I think there are times when you're about to have like a really important conversation, maybe a life-changing conversation, and where you choose to have that conversation matters, right? You want to have the, the, lo the, the location match sort of the weight of the talk, like the substance of the talk. Uh, that's why most marriage proposals don't happen at like a gas station, right? 
Like I know Jim and Pam had their moment at the gas station in the rain, but that wasn't planned, right? That wasn't planned. When I proposed to, to my wife, I popped the question on a boat off the shore from Crystal Cove because that was one of our favorite spots to hang out at the time. It was one of our favorite beaches to go to, still remains one of our favorite, favorite beaches to visit. And, it, uh, and, and the Beachcomber, that restaurant right there, is like one of our favorite places to visit. And so the idea was like, man, whenever we go to this spot, one of our favorite spots, whenever we go to this restaurant, we can look out towards the horizon and remember this moment that we shared together where I asked you to be my wife. Like, that, like we chose that. I chose that for a reason. And in the same way, this location, Caesarea Philippi, mattered for the context of this conversation. Roman Emperor Augustus Caesar named this location after himself. The reason it was called Caesarea Philippi is after Augustus Caesar. And Herod, one of uh, Caesar's cronies, sort of built like a massive temple there in order to honor Caesar. Caesar was an oppressive ruler, and, and Herod said, like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up this massive temple here to honor Caesar. It, it, it was sort of his way of sort of flexing uh, the empire's strength to the rest of the world. It was the crown jewel of the empire was this temper, this, this temple to say, like, yeah, remember who we are, remember who Caesar is. And so the surrounding region was also home to a lot of old temple pagan gods, like Pan and like Baal. And so Caesarea Philippi is a region, for all those reasons, it was a region that was known for both corrupt power, but also for pagan worship. It was known for worshiping false gods and emperors. And there was an actual seal on the temple there with an inscription that, that called Caesar the Son of God. And it's in that region that Jesus sits down his disciples to discuss who he really is. His true identity. And it's no mistake that that conversation and what Jesus reveals is going to push back against what everyone else is saying about his true identity. This is where he's going to proclaim that he's the true king, that he's a king in the fullest and truest sense of the word. Not those other guys, not Caesar, not Herod, not Nero, but, but Jesus is the true king, a king in the true sense of the words. He's the ultimate reality from which all the other kings and all the other gods and all the other rulers are cheap imitations of. And so Jesus asks his, question, the, the, his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? And then he asks them, who do you say I am? And that's the same question he has for us today. Who do you say that I am? I want you to notice how personal that question is. Who do you say that I am? He wants to know what you say he is. He doesn't want you to quote the t-shirt or the bumper sticker. He doesn't want you to quote the philosopher or the theologian. He's not saying, hey, what do people out, out there say about me? He wants to get to who do you say that I am? That is a big question that he's asking us. Who do you say that he is? This moment with his disciples was a pivotal moment. 
Jesus asks them to personally respond to who he is, and, G- and Peter responds, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, which is a way of saying you are the Messiah King. You are the saving King. That's what the Christ was. It was the Savior King that was promised from before. So to call Jesus a prophet would have been awesome and respectable because, in a sense, he was, but it wouldn't be enough. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the promised one in the flesh. He is the Savior, the true Son of God. He's unlike any other man. He's unlike any other ruler, any other teacher. He's the Christ. And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's referring to that Old Testament word for king. So Peter's saying, look, you are the Christ. You are the appointed one. You are the promised one. You are the king of all kings. He's calling Jesus Christ the king right there on the border of Caesarea Philippi. In the shadow of the Roman Empire's city of pagan temples, Peter's making this profession of faith. He's saying, Jesus, you are the king above all earthly powers. You are the king above all heavenly powers. Rome was a violent Regime. They were a ruthless regime. They were a feared regime. But Peter says, no, you are the Christ who stands tall above and beyond all of those other wannabe kings. But what does Jesus then say about the kind of king that he is? Now, there's nothing wrong with Peter calling him the Christ because Jesus was. There's nothing wrong with Peter wanting to sort of compare Jesus as to being this this great, victorious ruler and king above all the other earthly kings because Jesus was. But that's not the full picture. That's not the full picture. And so Jesus wants to further explain what kind of king he is. And that's where the hard sayings in our text begin. Point number two, we see that Jesus is the suffering king. In order for Jesus to be the true saving king that we need, he needs to also be the suffering king. You see, in our text, Peter scores Sunday school points from knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christ, but Peter still had little understanding of what it meant to be the Christ and Messiah. Peter still had little understanding, and we see that from the way he responds to Jesus. He has little understanding of what the Messiah was actually called to do, of what kind of Messiah Christ was. Peter got that part of the equation wrong. He sees the vision chart, but he's missing like the main point. He's missing the big E. He didn't understand that this Messiah was sent to suffer for people, to suffer for his people. I want you to read how the conversation continues in verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying to Jesus. So this is Peter 
setting Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus and he says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen. You will never suffer in this way. Peter, and then if you look at the original Greek, you see that Peter is actually condemning Jesus in the strongest possible language. Now, why does Peter do this? Why is he so upset? Why is Peter so sort of bent out of shape? Why does he react so strongly? It's because Jesus' description of what he's going to do, suffer, is not the Messiah that Peter anticipated. Peter doesn't like that. He's not the, a suffering Messiah. is not the kind of Messiah that he signed up for. Jesus said he must go, though, to Jerusalem and suffer many things. That's what he said in verse 21. He says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And that's the word. That word, that suffer word, and that must word, those words reveal the unique character of Christ. That suffering is a must of this sovereign king. Jesus has shown again and again and again that he is the sovereign one, that he is the powerful one, the one who holds control of all time, space, and matter, the one whose will will be always be done and whose plan will always go through and whose kingdom will always prevail. The suffering of Christ is not an obstacle in God's plan, though. It's not an interruption of the plan. It's not a diversion of the plan. The suffering of Christ is the plan. He must suffer, Jesus says. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And why is that? It's because the cross was the way to reverse the curse of sin in our lives and in the world. What Oscar told us a minute ago, how, how every single one of us, like you can't deny, even the most hardened skeptic can't deny that something's wrong with the world. In the most just way, the most right way, the most beautiful way that Jesus can reverse the effects of that is through the power of the cross. I mean, we're talking about a God who is righteously against sin righteously angry with the rebellion of his creatures. Angry that even though we were wired for his glory, that we would live for our own. And so Jesus entered into our world so that the broken would be restored and the lost would be found. He came to make the blind see, to make the dead live. And Jesus' cross was God's solution for that brokenness, for that lostness, for that blindness. On King Jesus' cross, the penalty was paid for sin so that all who trust in him would not perish but have everlasting life, would not be irreconciled with God but be reconciled with God and restored to the good life that God intended for us in the beginning. And Peter did not get this. He did not understand, he couldn't, his mind couldn't compute that the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings, the one that was promised, the one that was awaited, was going to be a suffering king. He did not get this because he's not seen the full picture quite yet in his own story. His distortion is based on three things. 
First, it's based on a way that he has misread the scriptures, a misreading of the scriptures. From the time he was a child, Peter was told that the Messiah would defeat evil, defeat injustice. And so a popular idea of the time was that the promised Messiah, that the Christ that would be to come, uh, would be like this, 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 this just yoked out military leader that would overthrow the government and ascend the throne. Psalm 2, for example, talks about the divine son, speaking of the Christ that was prophesied, uh, this ruler who would come and defeat evil and justice with a rod of iron. In Psalm 2, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's this picture in Psalm 2 of, of a Messiah, of the Savior for God's people who's merciful, but you got to turn to him. you got to repent to him. But he, if you don't, man, he's going to destroy you. And as soon as Jesus says to Peter, yeah, you're right. I'm that Christ that was promised. I'm the son that was promised. Peter's thinking of images like Psalm 2 in his mind. But Jesus isn't finished talking to Peter, and he continues and says, but I also want you to know that I'm going to suffer I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. In fact, the way I'm going to offer salvation, the way that I'm going to overcome evil, the way that I'm going to extend my reign is by first being defeated, weak, humble, turn myself over to suffer and die. What Jesus was saying was, he was saying, look, I'm not just the Messiah that was spoken of in Psalm 2. But remember the prophecies of the Messiah in places like Isaiah 53. Where in Isaiah 53 verse 7, it says that the coming Messiah, he would be described as somebody who was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. And so he opened not his mouth. You see, no one in Peter's day put Isaiah 2 or uh, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 53 together, right? Like, like they would read stuff about, like in Psalm 2 and be like, yeah, that's our king. That's the guy we're waiting for. He's going to come for us. He's going to save us. He's going to flex his power before our enemies for us. And then they get to these prophecies in Isaiah 53 that talk about how the Messiah would be a suffering servant. And they kind of stress their heads and be like, yeah, I'm not really sure what that's talking about. They never thought, they never imagined that this could be the same person. See, Jesus is a king. He's a savior unlike any other king. Like any other saving king, he's a suffering king. Peter may have also been uh, misled, and his view of Jesus may have been distorted by his self-focused desires, his own self-focused desires. Chances are that Peter wanted to be a certain type of king, a certain type of victor, so that he, Peter, could be like Jesus' number two, right? 
And we know that because in the following chapters, Jesus actually catches his disciples arguing about, hey, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Is it going to be me or is it going to be you? Of course it's going to be me. It's not going to be you, right? Like they're arguing about that. They had this picture of Jesus being like this global dominator. And they kind of pictured themselves, they were arguing about, hey, which one of us is going to be like number two in Jesus' political cabinet? I think some of us, some of you come to church with some personal desires of your own. Maybe the Jesus you want is the one who makes you feel powerful. Maybe the Jesus you want is the one who gets your guy elected. Maybe the Jesus you want is the one who gets you ahead of others. But that's not the Jesus we see in the scriptures. You see, sometimes our self-focused desires can sort of warp the idea that we have of who Jesus should be. Another thing that may have distorted Peter's perspective is a faulty worldview. Now, what is a worldview? Sociologists define worldview as sort of the lens through which you review the world. Makes sense, right? That's what a worldview is. It's, it's, uh, it's the lens through which you view the world. It's what shapes, what, what, what frames, what sort of colors in your view on the world around you. And so Peter was born into this, this worldview that was a type of traditional worldview that said that the Messiah would come to defeat our temporal suffering, our temporary suffering. That his worldview and Peter's worldview, like he, they, they believed that there was no real purpose in them temporal suffering and you should avoid it at all costs. You should try to get rid of it. You should try to avoid it. You should try to get through it, go past it. And because of these things, Peter wanted a Messiah who didn't come with any kind of suffering, who didn't come with any kind of hardship. He wanted a king without a cross. Peter's vision of Jesus was so opposed to God's great salvation plan that Jesus just straight up calls it satanic. He says in verse 3, or verse 23, it says that Jesus turned and he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? It's not that he's speaking to this demon that's like influencing Peter. It says, no, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. I mean, you got a picture of Peter like being called by Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. Like, whoa, right? Like, what are we talking about here? Why, why did Jesus respond that way? It's because the suffering of the Savior was so key, so important, so core, so central to who Jesus is, the kind of Messiah that he is, the kind of king that he is. It's so central to the very reason that he came that Jesus is like, look, I have no time for anyone who wants me to be anything other than a suffering servant. I've got no time for anyone that wants me to be anything other than a suffering king. And so he's like, look, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
his misreading of the scriptures, his own self-focused desires, his faulty cultural worldview was keeping Peter from seeing the things of God. Now, are we better? Are we any better than Peter? Can any of us say that we're better than Peter in this regard? My wife is. What about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? I mean, every single one of us, we have a vision, this idea, this picture in our mind of who Jesus is. Maybe you see him clearly, or maybe you think you see him clearly, but you really don't. Or maybe he's a little fuzzy for you, right? Like maybe you're seeing him more clearly in one season of your life, but then your personal desires or your ambitions get in the way, your prejudices get in the way, and then you have a stereotype that you want Jesus to all of a sudden fit into. You create a Messiah that gets behind your way of thinking, that gets behind your politics, that gets behind your cause, your view on things rather than one that's informed by the scriptures. Maybe you're in this place or a season in your life where you're misreading the scriptures. God's word is complex. It's complex, but at the same time, it is simple. It's drawn out, and it's also layered. And it can be easy for us to sort of accidentally pick just the stuff that we end up liking, the stuff that reinforces our own broken selves and ignore the stuff that we don't like. Ignore the stuff that challenges us and then interpret the word according to what's really just our preferences and opinions. Or maybe you're in this place where you're just completely unaware of the cultural worldview that has framed the way that you view things like the Bible. You're so inoculated, you're so just like swimming in this thick cultural milieu, this worldview, that you don't even realize how the various elements of our cultural worldview in the 21st century Westernism has shaped the way that you view God and what it means to know him and follow him. These were Peter's errors. He missed the real Jesus. He would get it eventually, but at this point in Matthew 16, at this point, he missed it. And Jesus calls him Satan. You see, Peter wants Christianity without a cross. He wants the king without a cross. Anyone who presents forgiveness and mercy with God, a relationship with God that doesn't require a cross, Jesus says, you're doing the deceitful work of the enemy. We are justified by faith and grace alone, through Christ alone. If there's any other way, if there was any other way other than this king, King Jesus, going to the cross, then Jesus could have said, I might go to the cross. Or hey, just so you know, Peter, like this one of the options if we go through with this might might involve a cross, might involve some suffering. Like I, I could go to a cross, but that's not what Jesus says. He says that he must go. 
This was the plan all along. Jesus is a suffering king. And having to suffer and having to die, Christ shows us the greatness of our sin. He shows us the, the grave effect that just the brokenness of the world has on creation. But also in his willingness to die, Christ shows us the greatness and the gravity of his love. That is the unique identity that we see in Christ Jesus. That is the unique identity of who he is that we can only see through his cross. There's this tension that we, we, we tend to feel between God's holiness and his love for us, right? Like when we learn about God's holiness, we learn about like, like man, are you kidding me? There's a God who is big enough to think up the universe that before anything ever existed, God was? Before anything existed, God said, I am, I am that I am, is his way of saying that he's the one who exists before even anything else existed, before time existed, before any space existed or matter existed, there was God. And you're telling me that this God is perfect. He's good. He's holy. And the reason that we, we long for things like truth is because it's wired into the very fabric of our being. It's because the reason that we long for things like truth is because there is a God who's the source of truth. The reason that we find ourselves never satisfied by things of the world is because we're made to be satisfied by something and someone beyond this world. The reason we seek and admire beauty is because they're all poor reflections of the greatest beauty that our heart's compass keeps pointing us towards. And when we get to know a picture of God like that, a God who is big, a God who is true, good, and beautiful, a God who is holy, then we start to doubt, how could a God like that really care about someone like me? How could a God like that love someone like me? Well, you're telling me that he knows everything? He knows that thing that I think of sometimes that I'm ashamed to admit to anybody else? He knows those thoughts before they even enter my mind? He knows the gossip that, that is going to flow out of my heart before it even is uttered on my lips? And yet, he loves me? This tension that we feel between God's greatness and his holiness and his love and care for us, his friendship towards us, his adoption of us, the tension we feel between those two things can only can only be resolved at the cross. I mean, some skeptics, they'll say things like, man, the, the, the cross is so barbaric. It's so archaic. Like, why couldn't God just like wave a wand and say, I forgive them. I love them, right? Because to do so would limit 
the gravity and the greatness of our sin. It would limit just the, 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 uh, the sheer wrongness of sin that broke the world. Something had to be done. It, you see, sin is ultimately at, at its corest point, it's rebellion against the God of the universe. And so God would just wave his hand at that, to just wave his hand at that, would be in some sense an injustice. It would be a way of minimizing the very act of our rebellion. Now God could also, on the other hand, just choose to outright destroy us. Him saying like, look, they're guilty and so they're gone. They're done. Snap my finger, I'm gonna start all over again. But that wouldn't be loving. It's only in the cross that we see the happy marriage between God's holiness and in his love for us. Because on the cross, the righteous wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus took that wrath onto himself. He absorbed it. He took the brunt of it. He absorbed it with his own body. A price was paid. But the price wasn't your blood. It was his, the son of God. Because Jesus absorbed the debt that we must pay ourselves. He paid it himself so that we could receive mercy. So now what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? I mean, this changes everything. This changes everything. So number three, following Jesus today is shaped by the cross. Following Jesus is shaped by the cross. Verse 24, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone wants to follow behind me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is saying, look, if you want to follow me, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to live life if it was intended to be lived, then you will have to follow me and take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, what is a cross? A cross, as you know, is a symbol of death. It was a symbol of suffering. He's not talking about like a burden that we have to carry in, in, in life, but he's, he's, he's talking by saying, take up your cross and follow me. He's saying, look, if you want to follow me, that involves... In a deep sense, it involves just giving up your old life for good. You give up your life for good, and you give it up to God. It's about self-denial. It's about complete surrender. It's about renouncing your personal ambitions and saying, look, I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm going to live for the plan that God has laid out before me. That's what Jesus did by saying that he'd be willing to go to suffer and die. And so for us to pick up our cross and follow him, it means you do not build your identity 
in what you can gain or accomplish in the world. It means that you do not build your life on what can be taken from you. If you do, you're going to lose everything. What good is it to gain the world and lose your soul, Jesus said. So taking up your cross and following Jesus is basically saying, look, give up the claim that you have on your own life and live for God. It's about holding nothing back from him. In other words, you need to really know. You need to really know what you're getting into before you commit to following Jesus. Following Jesus isn't something to do because it makes you feel good about yourself or because it, it adds a missing piece to your life, or because it helps you get out of trouble, we're often attracted to Jesus because of what he can do for us. But at some point, following him needs to go beyond that. At some point, following him is going to cost you. You're going to be asked to give him your all. You can't half-heartedly Follow the suffering king. If you want to be willing to follow the suffering king, you need to give him your whole heart. And so for the proud, that means renouncing the desire for status. For the greedy, that means renouncing the desire for stuff. For the complacent, that means renouncing the desire for ease and for comfort. For the anxious, that means renouncing your desire for control. You see, this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the suffering king. Don't be surprised when you're called to self-denial, the kind of self-denial that will affect every area of life. Maybe ask a question this afternoon. What is something that is keeping you from wholeheartedly following Jesus. Wholeheartedly. There was a reason that a little bit less than a year ago, we, we, we changed, uh, we added a word to our mission statement of a tr- as a church. We, 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 we don't just say that we um, make disciples, that we make wholehearted disciples. I think there's a picture of sort of what we might call like cultural Christianity or nominal Christianity that gets passed off as Christianity. That's really no Christianity at all. That says, yeah, I'll follow him in these ways, but not in these ways. So what is it that keeps you from wholeheartedly following Jesus? And maybe, maybe, hey, that, maybe that's what you need to lay before him today. Maybe that's what you need to repent of today, surrender today. If you try to build your life on anything other than God, it won't work. It won't work. If you want to be the husband you're called to be, the wife you're called to be, the parents, the friends, the coworker, the employee, the employer that God has called you to be, You need to build your life on God and not those other things if you want it to work. 
If Jesus came to live his life for and die in our place, then our response cannot be compartmentalized. Our response to that cannot be something other than wholehearted. If our heart is like a home, and we give Jesus keys to only a few, a few rooms, and we say like, yeah, you know, like, hey, make yourself at home, but don't go in the bedroom, don't go into my home office, make sure you stay out of the backyard, like, don't put anything in the garage, and, um, oh, you can only have the bottom shelf of the refrigerator, or actually just that part of the bottom shelf. I mean, can he really make himself at home? Jesus says, no, only by complete surrender will you receive true freedom, will you receive true life. You've got to lose your life in order to find it. And this is why he invites you to take up a cross. He wants to make you new. Jesus isn't being a sadist by saying, like, hey, take up your cross and follow me. Things are going to be hard. No, he wants you to lose your life so that you can truly find it. He wants to make you new. See, denying yourself includes some type of death, yes, but it also includes a type of resurrection where you are made new, where you are remade to live for the glory of God and the good of others. That's what we're made for. The truth is that true and lasting purpose and satisfaction only comes when we are living for Jesus in this way. Only when we take up our crosses to follow him, we begin to discover, yes, this is what it's all about. The way of the world is life in the beginning, but it'll end in death. It'll end in wanting more, never being satisfied. The way of Jesus, on the other hand, it, it seems like dying in the beginning. And it requires and feels like a lot of suffering for maybe even the first several chapters. But it brings true life in the end. John Stott once said, the self that we are to deny, disown, and crucify is our fallen self which is everything within us that is incompatible with Jesus Christ. Hence Christ's command, let him deny himself and follow me. The self we are to affirm and value is our originally created self. Everything within us that is compatible with Jesus Christ. Hence his statement that if we lose ourselves by self-denial, we shall find ourselves. In other words, true self-denial the denial of our false fallen self is not the road to self-destruction, but the road to self-discovery. It's the road to what we were made for. Though we're called to deny ourselves in humility and in service, there is a promise of glory on the other side of it. I want to close our time by considering some next steps that we might practically apply if we're to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Number one, let total self-surrender be your act of worship. 
There's no other act of worship other than total self-surrender. And so ask, like, have you taken up your cross? You see, the thing about the cross is that a person on a cross has no control over their lives. It's a total surrender to Jesus. Does that describe your relationship with Jesus? Can you describe it as, as, as wholehearted? Are all your beliefs captive to him? Because if he's your Lord, you submit to his word because, because he says it. It's his word. Is your will captive to his? Do you say, with all that I am and all that I have and all that I hope to be, it's entirely up to you, Lord? Not only let total surrender be your act of worship, but number two, embrace. Embrace the difficult parts. Part of what it means when Jesus says to take up your cross and follow him is, is recognize that a big part of the journey of following Jesus involves hardship and suffering. Maybe you can self-reflect and ask yourself, is Christianity for you more about comfort or is it about a cross? Christianity is not about giving us our best life now. It's about Jesus saying, no, I'm enough for you, even if it's in the worst of situations. I want to so remake you I want to so envelop you in my kingdom. I want to be so near to you that even in the worst of your situations, you learn to say that I'm enough for you. Sometimes embracing the hard parts means obedience when you don't feel like it. And so maybe ask, like, are there limits to my obedience? Sometimes it means you need to stop holding on to something or that you need to start doing something that you've been putting off. And sometimes it just means that you're called to trust him in the worst of situations. Number three, picking up your cross and following him also means that you lean into the family of the cross. You've heard us say here at, at this church that church is not an event that you go to, but it's a family that you really belong to. You don't go to church. I mean, we, we say that, and there's a sense in which that's true, that we go to church. But it's truer as a Christian that you belong to a church. The cross of Jesus not only reconciles us with God, but it also reconciles us with one another. Following Jesus, being an active part of a local church, is the same thing. You can't divorce one from the other. And number four, you also embrace the mission of the cross. Embrace the mission of the cross. The Christian life is not just passive surrender. It's not just, hey, Jesus, I surrender to you, and that's it. It's not just passive surrender. It's also active engagement in what God is doing and what he desires to do through you. The cross was the means of saving the sinners of the world. And so part of what it means to take it up is to actively devote your life to the mission of the cross. A lot of people think that being a Christian is like, hey, I obey the Ten Commandments. I say a meal before, or a prayer before meals, and that's it. But no, it's far more. It's far more than that. It's also accepting his mission as your own. That means you assess your gifts, you assess your resources, you assess your time, and you have this constant prayer and desire to see more and more people come to know Jesus. 
love him and worship him as God. At the end of the day, picking up your cross means, it means I don't come to Jesus to prove myself. I don't come to Jesus to negotiate, but I come to Jesus to surrender. I come to him to repent. I come to him to give, to give myself to Christ, the King of the cross. Have you done that? Are you doing that? Come to him with no restrictions, no agenda, but just a simple heart of humility. King Jesus took his cross to suffer for you, and so will you take up yours to surrender to him and find true life? Losing our lives in light of the cross is good news for us. The cross shows us that God meets us in our deepest fears and in spite of our deepest imperfections, in spite of our most rebellious sins. And it shows us that the Father is willing to empty heaven of its most precious possession, the Son of God, in order to win your soul. And that on the other side of the cross, Secured for you is a greater kingdom and a greater life than you could ever imagine. And so we'll happily lose our lives so that we may find it in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.